Second Corinthians chapter 7. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I often boast about you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with consolation. I am overjoyed in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted in every way, disputes without and fears within. But God, who consoles the downcast, consoled us by the arrival of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was consoled about you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. This is the word of the Lord. Guess not. Guess it's you. Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, something a little bit different today. Uh, we are finishing up 2 Corinthians, the time allotted to it. And Tim and I, yeah, I'm on. Uh, Tim and I wanted to do this together in something a little bit unique, a little bit of tag team. Uh, it is fun for me to get to do this with Tim because while you may not know it, the front row is the funnest row in the entire, for the entire congregation. It is, I look forward to it each week because we pick on each other and laugh together and hug and, and all of that. Uh, you might be wondering why we're standing at this distance. Well, we wanted to be close enough so that you could take a picture of us with your phones to remember this. Nobody's pulling out their phone, Tim. Oh, thank you, Ryan. Yeah, Ryan. <laughs> but also, uh, far enough away from each other that we can't smack each other while we're while we're in our parts. And yet you did it anyway. Well, I, I'm, I'm getting I'm getting my distance just right. Okay. Uh, there is a he's brilliant, brilliant surgeon, uh, writer. What he wrote about in his working with people as they age was just amazing. His name is Atul Gawande. And he has also done some other work, and so I read almost anything I can, I can find by him. And he wrote, he wrote a book called The Checklist Manifesto. And his point was is that life is complex, and the greater the complexity, the greater the mistakes that we're going to make. And he said that there are two primary mistakes that, that we make. Next slide. The first are errors of ignorance. Those are the errors that we make because we just don't know enough. Okay, you can take care of that by education. The second one are errors of ineptitude. And those are the errors that you make, even though you know better, you forget about them. And so he talks about how important it is that pilots, airline pilots, adopt the checklist, and they live by their checklist. Surgeons, Judy, you probably live by your checklist. It's just all parts of life. Starbucks, baristas now have their checklists. 
So as we were working through uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the passage just seemed to, to connect and ideas came out of it. And we thought in terms of a checklist as Siwao is getting ready for uh, a new season, an exciting new season, and things just worked for a series of things that we could that we want to suggest to you as as a checklist. So good so far? So good so far. Okay, just so uh, let's just jump in. So is it, here's a checklist. Oh, let's go back one. Uh, Alex, here's the overall theme that we saw from 2 Corinthians 7. It's how do we live and function as a tender and teachable community together. We thought this was a, a, a prime place to share some of these ideas. So all the way through, if somebody says, well, what did you talk about or what did the speakers talk about today? You go, well, it's about how can we be a tender and teachable community? All in the same, all in the same wavelength there. Okay, here's the first one. Comes from verses two and three. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I have already said that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. So first thing on the checklist, are there frequent displays and declarations of affection all the way around? Now, what makes... What Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 7, so interesting, is that it runs so counter to the norms of the Greco-Roman world. Listen to this from a, a counterpart of Paul. This is what you ought to practice from morning till evening. Begin with the most trifling things, like a pot or a cup, and then advance to a tunic, a paltry dog, a mere horse, a bit of land. Thence to yourself, your body and members, your children, wife, brothers, Look on every side and cast these things away from you. Essentially, what he is saying is detach from everything. Just detach. Don't let them have any hold on you. And what's Paul saying here? Do the exact opposite of that. Make room in your hearts. Express affection, just like he's doing for for people. And it's interesting that what the Stoic was saying, it sounds almost Buddhist. And Christianity says... The opposite. Show affection, declare affection for for each other. Did you want to jump in here? I, I, I do. Um, and thank you for, for leading us into this. So the other night, uh, a few of us went to a lecture um, over at BB Church in Oakland. Um, and the title of that lecture was, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or community? And it struck me that in so many ways, that is the the striving of the church, right? Are we going to be chaos, which is what the world reflects, or are we going to be the beloved community? And so when we look at the chaos of the world, right, it trains us to be hypercritical of one another. In fact, I think I said this um, a few weeks ago. They did a, there was a, an article that I was reading talking about the early days of Twitter. And as they um, instituted the like, 
they realized that the things that got the most traction, that got the most likes, were the most negative things. So what did they do? Well, that's where they shifted their attention because that's where the money was, right? The money, we want to get as many people liking as we can. And if that's the way that we get all those likes, which means we get more um, advertising money, well, then we'll just let that that way. We're not supposed to be built that way, right? Paul says, we are to die together and live together, meaning, for me at least, that we're dying to the ways of the world and living in Christ. So what does that mean? So if the world is chaos, hypercritical, be hypercritical of each other, call each other out, then what does the church say? Well, the church says you need to be demonstrative in your radical affection and your radical showing of affection. Right? And what does that mean? That means, of course, showing people love when they do big things, but it also means showing people love when they do little things. Right? I mean, I know I haven't, but how many people on a regular basis tells Rochelle, thank you, Rochelle, for setting this up. You know, we can't really do this without you, and yet you do it every week. And you do it, you know, um, not looking for thanks, not looking for um, appreciation. We need to be showing that appreciation, right? One of the people I think in our church is really good at showing appreciation is Tracy Aslock. Tracy is like a Jedi of appreciation. The other night, it's a great, great story. The other night, we're, we're right before we're having dinner, right? Because we're in a life group together. She and Hans, are, Hans, her husband, are talking about uh, having taken Hans's mother out for her birthday dinner. And they went to some swanky place in Capitola. And Hans was like, yeah, you know, it was, you know, it was a nice place, but way overpriced. And, and Tracy says, yeah, you know, we got salmon. It was a little bitty piece of salmon. It was like $35. And I'm like, whoa, $35? Buy a whole fish for $35. And then she goes, but they gave us sauces. And I'm like, wait, like, like, come on, Tracy. Like, you can find appreciation in everything, even overpriced food. That's what I think that looks like for us um, as a church. And I'll get okay. there. <laughs> so, uh, the power of being able to do that is so great. And here's where I'm going to make an allusion to a show that you're too sophisticated as an audience to watch. But Ted Lasso, where here's this guy. OK, here is this guy, an American football coach going in stupid premise, but he's going to become the coach for an English soccer team. And the place is completely demoralized. And he goes in and he starts saying to people, you know what? I appreciate you. And people go, what? We're not living in a world like that where people appreciate each other. I appreciate you. Don't we all want to live in something like that? So here's where I'm going to get even a little bit more granular. You're going to be having a new pastor coming in here. And the first six months, 
it's all sweet and lovely and, and nice. And what I want you to do is that I want you to train your new pastor that, you are in a, that they are in a different kind of place. That this is the sort of place where we say, I appreciate you, brother. We notice small things. And they go, oh my goodness, have I come have I come to the one place in, in the world that just feels like home to us? No, let me warn you, the first six months, that's honeymoon. We saw it a lot in India where missionaries would come into India, and for the first six months they're going, oh, this is amazing, we love being here. That's still the tourist phase. I want your affection and declarations of love to, be, to really kick in even after the first six months. And it will mean that you probably have to train them because we just don't do it very well. And I remember I did not grow up in a family. It was a family of love, but we didn't talk about it. And I just got thinking, you know what? I need to reset the course of my family. So um, I, talk with my, I would talk with my dad once a week. And it was like a Wednesday evening and came down to the end of the conversation. And I said, well, Dad, just want you to know, I love you. And it was like he was choking on his scrambled legs. <laughs> didn't know what, I mean, he didn't know what to do. But slowly, you know, he got it. And for the last then 10 years of his life, he wouldn't end a conversation without saying, son, I love you. I want you to think in terms of training your new pastor in, in words, but also... When it's Pastor Appreciation Day, send them a note. Uh, if you've got a cabin or a vacation home, once a year, open it up to them. Now, it's not as though they can't pay for it themselves. But there is something that is so meaningful, and I'm speaking from the other side, when people go, you know what, I know you've been putting in a lot of hours. We appreciate you. Here's the cabin. Or we're going to give you a VRBO. It's 150 bucks. That's three pieces of salmon. That is three pieces or, of salmon. Not, not, no, not, not. But that's like not, two not, or three I got my fish. math wrong. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> not much is my point. And, and congregation, imagine if, you're, if, you're church, if you are a pastor and your church family is watching out and speaking, speaking into those things for you, do you know what it does to a pastor's heart? You just flourish. And when all the other pastors get together and kind of complain, not that it ever happened in my experience, but when they get together to complain about their churches and you as a pastor are going, God bless my congregation. That is just powerful. So that's why I wanted to have it on, on a checklist. Okay, here's number two. Any questions on that? Because this is kind of an interactive day. Okay, number two. Are we creating an atmosphere where the compliments of devoted candor flow thick and fast? Verse four, uh, Paul says, I am being completely frank with you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with consolation. I am overjoyed in our affliction. What's interesting about the completely frank there, that's a technical phrase, parousia. And it described 
a very specific relationship. So uh, another counterpart to the Apostle Paul wrote this way. In short, a wise person will employ frankness or parousia toward his friends. Although many fine things result from friendship, there is nothing so grand as having one to whom one will say what is in one's heart and who will listen when one speaks. The writer is saying, you know, deep down, I don't really have anyone who I know them and they know me and well, it may say difficult things for me, but I know that they care for me deeply and, and profoundly. Learning how to do that, because here's the reality. We, we live with kind of a faux community in our life groups. We only go so deep and people don't really know us very, very well. Because when you live in a constantly... Uh, critical culture, we hide a lot. Mm -hmm. We hide to protect ourselves. And what Paul is saying here is, I am practicing parousia with you. Uh, I want to come back to this in just a moment. Did you want to jump in here? Well, I'll just say again, right? Um, I'm going to ride this chaos versus beloved community, right? So, you know, the world is about being blunt rather than showing candor, right? And candor is about being open and honest, but there's a sincerity that undergirds it. And in a Christian context, it should be like rooted in love and not that kind of Valentine sentimentality, but it, it, the ability to sometimes give hard truths to people we love so that they can grow, so that they can thrive. Um, James 3.17 says, Wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. So when we find those times that we have to be frank or that we have to demonstrate uh, candor, it's really mirroring the way that God shows frankness and candor to us. I remember a few years ago when my son Isaiah was playing basketball, right? And we are in the age of Steph Curry, so everybody wants to be a shooter, everybody wants to be a scorer. That was not his natural gifting, right? And I could see him getting frustrated. Uh, I could see some of his teammates getting frustrated. And so I had to sit down and I had to say, look, in order for you to be the shooter that you want to be, you're going to have to put a lot of work into it because that, that's just not your strength. But here's where, you, where your strength really is. Here's where, your, where God naturally gifted you. You're a beast on the defensive end. That is your power. You'll never make your weakness your strength, but grow in your strength and work on your weakness. And at some point, it's going to get better. Now, did he want to hear that? 
Absolutely not. He wanted to hear, you're going to be a great shooter one of these days. And I don't know. If he had stuck with it, maybe he would have been a great shooter one of these days. But the point wasn't to tear him down. The point wasn't to make him want to give up. It was to be candid with him and say, here's where you are. That's not your strength, but here is your strength. So again, I think that when we talk about those times when we have to come to someone and we have to tell those hard truths, I think it's important that we remember James. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. It's not about being brutally honest, because the word before that is brutal. Nobody wants, you know. It's not keeping it real, keeping it 100%. It's faithfully prayerful wisdom that we're trying to share with the people that we love. And if we do that in the church, we take that out with us into the world. Because remember, we're supposed to be teachers to the world, light to the world, right? And so when they're dealing in their chaos of being brutally honest and blunt, we want to counter that with prayerful wisdom. So taking that just a step further, when I think about examples of what that has looked like in work experiences or, or church experiences, believe it or not, uh, Pixar is one of the best examples that I've seen. Um, most of the time, and Tim, I think you would agree with this, what people do is that they save up everything that they want to share and then dump it. It's kind of like the annual review. Are there, is there anybody in here who likes their annual review for work? <clears throat> no, you know, you're, oh, man, I don't want... It's that saving things up. What Pixar has done so well is that they have created uh, an environment where they are critiquing things day in and day out, almost every day. And people who are on the lower echelons can, can say tougher things to the people above them. But they set the ground rules and say, okay, nobody gets to go bashing here, to your point, that we're going to speak into this because we want to be better together. And what they've done is that they've created this very, very collegial work relationship where speaking the truth very clearly and kindly to each other, they're doing it constantly. So imagine a group that gets together to talk about worship services. Let's say that you have a team planning worship. If they're graciously and lovingly wanting to create the best services that they can. They don't save it up and, and every, every two or three months dump on one another. They're meeting once a week to say, okay, what worked? What's our hope for what's going to happen next? There is a spirit of, of care and collegiality, and that's what I heard through, through what you said. Um, truth by itself just hurts. Truth with where I know you cherish me, 
that's worth volumes. Okay, number three. When we get stuck, have we gone in search of a Titus? Verses 6 and 7. But God, who consoles the downcast, consoled us by the arrival of Titus. And not only by his arrival, but also by the consolation with which he was consoled about you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Over the past several weeks, I talked a little bit about Paul's experience with the church in Corinth, how there was that painful, painful time when he made the, the, the cross-the-sea trip and he was attacked, literally, um, physically beat up. Paul got on the ship and went back across to Ephesus. And what's interesting is that when we piece the story together, Titus is the person who appears, Paul's associate, is the person who makes his way over to Corinth and is the mediator. He's the healer. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up hearing, well, if you've got a problem with your brother, you go to them and you duke it out between the two of you and you fix it. That works when there is a balance of power. I'm not discounting what Christ is saying here, but Christ is teaching a monoculture. What's going on here is there is a balance of power. And Dwayne Elmer, he's a brilliant, brilliant uh, Christian leader, teaches on uh, cultural knowledge, wisdom, discernment. And he said, if there is a balance, an unbalance, an imbalance in power, Quite often, you have to rely upon a mediator, somebody who goes in, who loves you and loves them, and they begin the process of working out uh, a reconciliation. I think that's what we have going on here in, in Corinth, that Titus becomes this person who steps into the gap. Uh, That doesn't happen. I've not watched many good examples of that happen. But when I see people who understand the value of a mediator when there is a brokenness in relationship, that's a powerful thing. And the road ahead, yeah, there are always going to be challenges. There are going to be stuck points that take place within the life of, of Seawell. How can you have deep community without having stuck points? But instead of just telling people, well, go to them, get it fixed. Well, sometimes the issues of shame, the issues of difficulty are just too complex. And we need to be prepared to do that for each other. Absolutely. Um, one of the things, it's interesting, one of the things that uh, Paul uh, criticizes the Corinthians about, or the church in Corinth about in uh, 1 Corinthians 1, is that they are taking each other to court. They're trying to settle disputes outside of the community. And he says, do you not know the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Right. Like, what are you doing? Right. Like we're we're supposed to be teaching the world how to resolve conflict. You're going out to the world 
trying to resolve your conflict. And again, what is the world? The world is chaos. In the world, we settle conflicts through retribution, through domination. In the beloved community, we're supposed to bring reparation and reconciliation. In fact, and let me just say, our church, we, we talk about a lot of things. I'm always surprised how many people come out and go to other churches or talk to other Christians and talk about, tell them what we're talking about in our church. We talk about race, racism, and not just race. We talk about racism. We talk about white supremacy. We talk about how do we have a spiritual friendship with the LGBTQIA community. These are the things that we wrestle with as a church, and that brings out passion. That brings out disagreements. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.18, God reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And reconciliation doesn't necessarily mean that at the end, we all agree. No. But what it does say is that we build a bridge to understanding, right? And once we get to that place of understanding, we can actually then, we can really start having the conversation then. Um, in one of our wrestling series, uh, we were having, uh, folks were sharing out about the topic that we were on, and one of, one, of, one of our folks made a statement. Someone in the group responded to that statement that made that first person feel like, whoa, maybe this is not a safe place. Maybe I should just, you know, keep quiet. So when it came to the rest of racial justice um, leadership team, there are two things that we, we needed to do. We needed to reconcile that those folks, but we had to do it in a way that made that space safe for both people, right? Because it wasn't about who was right or wrong. It was about how each of those, per those people were situated to the topic we were talking about. The first person made their comment because they were situated at, at one spot. That triggered the other person because they were, they were situated at another spot. So we had to get, we had to choose the, the, some wise folks to, to bring those folks together and not duke it out. But we had to create that bridge to understanding, right? Again, it's not about who's right, who's wrong. Both of you are reacting out of where you're situated. Let's try to find, let's try to get some understanding about that. So that you know that this, is a, that this is a safe space and we want everybody to be able to respond from their life, their lived experience. That's our ministry, right? We have a lot of folks that have that gift of bridging. I'm going to admit that's not my gift. That's not my gift. I got to get trained in that, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's going to be my next point, but that's okay. You know, um, <laughs> I know it is. 
What'd she say? <laughs> she said, yeah, sauces. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, I, but, but again, I, I think that, um, and, and the other thing is too, is I think that the other thing that can happen when you say you guys get together and just duke it out, one of two things are going to happen. One, they're, 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 they actually are going to duke it out because no one is going to be willing to give, right? Mm-hmm. I said what I said. I said what I said, right? Or they just choose not to deal with it. And now we got stuff brewing that gets escalated, right? One of the things that I'm working on uh, in my day job, um, my organization is piloting a program called Peace Committees. Uh, this is a uh, conflict resolution model that was started in South Africa, post-apartheid South Africa. And basically what it does is it says in a community, a group of residents will act as a peace committee. So when other folks in the community have a dispute, they bring that dispute to that committee and the community resolves that problem. Now, the point is not to figure out who is right and who is wrong. The point is to figure out what was the root cause of why this happened and how can we as community figure out a way to make sure that it doesn't escalate and that it doesn't happen again. That's beloved community Reparation, reconciliation. And that's what I think we as a church community, I think we're, we, we have pockets of it. But I think that that's something that as we continue to have these tough conversations, these tough theological conversations, that's something that we need to train ourselves in. So I want to build on that. And it really is uh, number four. When we feel like we are called to speak truth in love, have we built the arena of trust so that while words may hurt, they do not harm? Verses 8 and 9. For although I grieved you with my letter, I do not regret it, although I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you grief, though only briefly. Now I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance, for you felt a godly grief, so that you were not harmed in any way by us. If, if we were sitting together over coffee, one of the things that I would, would say is, I don't think that we prepare the arena of trust well before we have the hard conversations. I think we make assumptions that, oh, well, we love, we live each, we love each other, uh, we can talk it through, and we make assumptions about how skilled we are. But then when the hard conversations take place. Fear takes over. Discomfort takes over. Fear of not upsetting other people take, takes over. And so we are kind of unskilled. Even, even a place like Seawell, I think that we are, are fairly unprepared for regularly having those conversations. And so we tend to quite often make things worse. And I think this is important because if you're going to have, if you're going to be a church that really wants to pursue being the radical center, 
You can't just walk into conversations and then be shocked when there are problems. There's a group that I was telling Tim about called Braver Angels. They do a marvelous job of creating the arena of trust. And their mission really is how do we get past the the polarity that we live with in our culture right now, where people can't even talk to each other. Families can't, can't talk to each other over the Thanksgiving meal, so people aren't showing up. Republicans are not talking to Democrats, and it's all crazy. Well, we're not even, we're not prepared to even walk in. And how do we, how do we respond when things feel a little bit, sorry, I didn't mean to step on your mic there. As long as you don't <laughs> how, step on me. When, when things feel tense, in, when you're in the middle of a conversation, how do you respond? I mean, it, it needs to be that granular. And then one other thing, though, that, that braver angels do is that when it's time to have some of those hard conversations, not everybody's invited into it. So, for example, take the LGBTQIA do you, when, if a church is working its way through it, do you open that conversation up to everybody, even though who's, who, who may not share your faith convictions? Or do you say, we need to have some heartfelt conversations among those who hold to our, our core beliefs about the authority of Scripture? Because, Tim, here's what happens. If you, if you throw the doors open and you have people coming into a very, very delicate conversation, I'm going to hate to say things that I know may offend or upset other people who, who don't have the values that I do. But when we're talking about issues of gender, it's going to raise up some questions about do we still hold to the authority of Scripture? I need to have that kind of trust built up so that we can go there. But if you've got too wide of a circle of people who aren't even there, it's going to imperil good conversation and trusting conversation. Does that make sense? It does. And I think, you know, we actually did open it up for everyone. Um, but we were careful in the way that we did it in that we did it in smaller groups. So it wasn't like we had everybody in one big room and we were, we had smaller groups knowing. I mean, I think that that's, that's the one thing too. I think that the way that you establish that arena of trust is you got to know the people that are in your community, Right. And so when we were having um, our LGBTQIA plus co- uh, conversations, first we said, no, we, we, let's break it down. We'll have different groups meeting. We recognize that people are in different places. We know that. And we know that people are firm in their place either, either way. So first, we make sure that we have these groups that are balanced. Second, we enter in with a commitment of conduct, right? So that when we come in, we all know, here's how we're expected to 
We're not, we're not telling anybody not to be honest, not to be open, not to speak their minds, but there's a way that you do that when you're trying to have grown folk conversation. Try so hold on, hold on, let me, what, what, let me what, name it because I'm about to preach. No, no, what's uh, grown, grown folk conversation. Okay, I just, so I, I never of, heard that so, before. So one of the things that I think is, is really hard sometimes is that folks don't want to treat grown folks like grown folks. Um, once you get to a certain age, you know how to behave yourself. You behave yourself every day at work. You go into a, into a work meeting and you don't just pop off. Because you know that's going to cause problems and situations. So when we are having conversations that are hard conversations in the church, you need to come with that same attitude, act like you've grown. And you can disagree without being disagreeable. You can, be disagree, you can disagree without being nasty, without attacking. And I think that to a certain degree, that has to be laid out. Because you're, you're invited to conversations, right? Yeah. So you, nobody, nobody came to your house with a subpoena, said you had to show up, that you had to show up. So if you can't come into a conversation knowing I'm stepping into a space where people are not going to agree with me, I'm stepping into a space where I might have the most disagreeable opinion how are you going to behave? I'm looking at the clock going, okay, we're going to have to keep rolling here. But to your point, I agree completely. I just don't know that we train each other. I agree with your concept of, of grown folks. I may even borrow it and <laughs> give you credit for it or not. That's not uh, mine. That's, that's yeah. black folks, but that's black folks. Uh, <laughs> but I think... That because we're so rusty at it, most of us don't know how to even walk into those kinds of conversations. How you say things when you've maybe not even said them aloud to yourself. And that's where I think good training prepares us mm -hmm. to do that. Okay, number five, do we practice regular thoughtful repentance for mid-course correction and to keep our hearts tender toward God and our family. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret, but worldly grief produces death. For we see what earnestness this godly grief, grief has produced in you. What eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves guiltless in this matter, in the matter. Uh, all I want to say on this is I've been with you for... A uh, little bit over a year and a half. Each week we do communion. Um, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. I don't mean this in a sour way at all. But in this past amount of time, I don't think that I have heard repentance as part of our preparation for, for communion a lot. And I'm, I'm just thinking about that. And I think I need to be reminded about repentance built into my life because that's how mid-course correction takes place. You know, it's funny. When we were talking about this after we got off of our, off our call, I was remembering we used to have a time, right? I think it was right before communion, 
where we would be called to basically repent in that moment. Think over your week and think about things that you want to lift up and ask forgiveness for. And I don't know how that, how, how that left, right? I, I think that there was a time when repentance came up more in our church than it does now. Uh, I don't know if it's because of, you know, the, 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 the di- life. different yeah. life and different pastors coming in and, you know, each pastor brings in their own kind of personality and we kind of, you know, shift or whatever. But, you know, I, I think that it's not something that's foreign to us. And maybe it's something that we need to think about. How do we bring that back in to, to, okay. to our praxis? It's a good checklist thing. Last one. Do we receive our shepherd and preachers each week as our imperfect ambassadors from heaven? And I think you've got such a wonderful college of communicators here. You're going to have a, a, a new pastor. But how marvelous it is when you, when you stand up, if you know you've got people praying for you and you've got people just ready to hear what, what you've been thinking about and praying all week. And that's a gift that a congregation can, can just give. Yeah, no. Um, I th- I, you know, th- to be really, I think that folks are always really good at first, you know, giving support when they know any of us are going to be speaking. You know, I, I feel like folks are praying for us and pulling for us to be able to get up here uh, and, 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 and give the word. And so I think that in, in that sense, um, we're good at that. Here, here, here's something that I think also, and I think you mentioned this in our meeting, and I looked, thought back to our church, and I thought, oh, we used to do that too, and we kind of don't do that much anymore, is that when we have folks uh, from the teaching team or even folks who are just coming up sharing testimony, uh, the pastor would always pray over us before we spoke. Um, and I think that that's, again, something that maybe we, we should probably get back to. I, I mean, I know I appreciated it, you know, um, just to have, you know, that, that moment of centering where I'm not just centering myself, but I feel like, you know, in prayer, the whole church is helping me to center, you know, uh, as I'm about to give the word. So I think that that's something, again, just thinking back on past practices that maybe sure. need to come back, that may be one of them. Yeah, so take these six checklists. I think um, uh, not that you have to uh, <laughs> paint them on the wall or anything, but we feel like these are just gentle reminders of, of who we can be as a congregation. Um, I think that whoever it is, your new pastor is going to find themselves in a marvelous conversation. And my whole hope, my goodness, is I so want Seawow to flourish for the reputation of Christ and for the need of this city. So let me pray. Father, uh, Great to be with my brother today, and how fun to uh, get to tease him and be teased by him and, and the bonds that you give us in Jesus. And I pray for the new pastor. I haven't met them, don't know who they are, but I pray even right now that we would be the sort of con- congregation that they just 
marvel that they have found uh, a spiritual home like this. And uh, may there be reciprocity and grace and affection that flows all the way around all the time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.